Before we begin tonight, I would like to ask everyone to lift their hearts up one more time to ask the Lord's assistance. Our Holy Father, we come to you in the name of our Christ. And Lord Jesus, we know that you are interceding for us. You indeed will take our prayers and fix them and make them right. But Holy Spirit, we pray that you would guide us in what we are wanting. Help us to choose what is right. We pray, Lord, that our hearts would seize upon Christ, and that our very core of our hearts would long to know him even more, to love him. So we want to know your word. We want to understand your doctrine. We want to be able to say that we walk in the light of the law, in the light of the gospel, in the light of all that is good and right that is presented to us. But this may lead us to embrace our Lord Jesus Christ even more. Inflame our love to you, Lord Jesus. Give us grace. Help us to do these things for your glory. We ask it in our Lord's name. Amen. Amen. Uh, this is part B of this one particular lesson concerning the epistle written to the Ephesians. This is found in the second chapter of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. I would like to read the first seven verses to you. I'll be reading from the ESV. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden candlesnaps. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, who have taste attested of those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently, bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let me remind you that these scriptures are teaching us many things, but I want to concentrate on one particular aspect, one particular doctrine, and that is that the Holy Spirit will provide to us a variety of gifts and helps. But we must realize that all these gifts and helps are designed to aid us in our love to Christ. We must never forget to love Christ above all other things, above everything. We're going to review a little bit. You'll hear some things I said this morning, but I hope to add some things to them as we go along. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, we read where he, uh, the Lord is saying to the angel of the church in Ephesus. And of course, this is our Lord Jesus speaking. He's saying that he has the seven stars in his right hand who are the pastors of these churches. And it is very important that we understand that this is a literal place. It is Ephesus. You can find it on the map. But we also should understand that uh, there's a common phrase. It works like this. If the shoe fits, you wear it. If this letter written to the Ephesians applies to us, we must apply it to ourselves. Mm -hmm. It is our obligation. That is why we have this letter. And so this city, 
if you uh, you know if you looked at it on a map, you'll find it where Turkey is right now. It had at that time a proconsul government by the Roman Empire. Now it was at this time since they were a Roman city, a city, they had the ability not only to rule from Rome but also the to tax and so on. Now everyone in this city was under the Roman rule. That means all the people that worshipped Diana in this great temple that they had, they did so under the uh, the permission of the Roman government. The Roman government allowed them to do that as long as they were willing to submit to Caesar and to worship them. There was a secret agreement between the Jews and Rome that said, we want to live here in Ephesus, but would you please allow us to not give our allegiance to Caesar? And they alone had this agreement. And remember what we mentioned this morning when they were in the arena, when they had the riot? I just wanted to mention this right now. They were attempting to have Christians separated from the Jews so that they would, have, they would be obligated to worship Diana, but not themselves. There was a lot going on in the political scene. And so being a Roman proconsul, this was very important for us to understand. We remember that these people were living in what we would consider back then the lap of luxury. Even today, we look at ourselves in our country and we live very comfortably, do we not? I mean, it's just... We're just thinking about what type of pleasures to have, not whether we should have them. Right now, I'm thinking about putting an air conditioner in my back room. Isn't that nice to say, oh, I want that cool back there. There are many people, in, you know, there are many people around the world that they wouldn't even know what an air conditioning, why would they, you know? They, they just don't. I'm deciding which one. Mm. Do you see the difference? These people were affluent the way we were affluent. They lived in multi-story homes. They had mosaic artwork around. They had marble walls. They had heated floors. They had all types of things. They were affluent. They were rich. They were wealthy. They had pull and they were admired around the world. Many people that went to that part of the world knew that this was a very important city. As a matter of fact, the Temple of Diana not only had, uh, I guess, the, uh, shall we say, the reputation, maybe not back then, but today it had the reputation of having one of the seven wonders of the world. But they also, many people didn't know this, that they collected money from around the world and had, they were like a bank. They collected the wealth of the world and it was kept within the temple. And so they were strong economically. They had the ability to say, not only should you be worshiping us, but also all of your businesses are dependent upon us. And so they had many, many ways of controlling the people. When Paul arrived there... Thank you. <laughs> this is when you, if you have a phone, silence it. Okay? At the time that the Apostle Paul arrived there, it was approximately 53 AD. There was only two, there, there were 250,000 people. And like I said this morning, it's about one fifth. Our population here is around 50,000. And so if you just kind of take Titusville and multiply it by five, you would have the city of Ephesus. The Apostle Paul, when he was there, just imagine all those people. They had a great influence. When things happened there, the word spread very rapidly. Paul trained the leaders there. Uh, Paul wrote an epistle to these people uh, after his third missionary journey. He was in Rome at the time, probably in prison when he did this. What happened, that is what the scriptures can tell us about um, Ephesus, is very revealing in chapter 19. We went through this chapter this morning, but I want to review just briefly the four things that we looked at. In chapter 19, we saw that there were 12 disciples that had been 
um, followers of John the Baptist. We read our scripture reading tonight in Luke uh, concerning uh, our Lord addressing who John the Baptist was. And even when John the Baptist is being talked about by the Lord Jesus, in the other synoptic gospels, the Lord said, this is the Lord, this is John the Baptist, and if you would receive it, he is Elijah. And then he would say something like this, if you had ears to hear, let him hear. That's one of the phrases that he would use often, just like the Lord uses, uses that phrase at the end of every letter to every church. And so that these 12 disciples were better um, advised by the Apostle Paul. They were rebaptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and the Apostle Paul put their hands on them, and they received uh, the power of the Holy Spirit to speak in tongues. This spread throughout the entire city. This made the Christians that were there visible to all the populace. The second thing that happened is that once they got the attention of the populace, they saw that there was something truly happening in this church, that it was amazing that they had the authority and that they had visible power. Then 12, I mean, then four people, uh, no, I take that back, seven people who were sons of Sceva, who was a chief priest from Jerusalem, he, they attempted to perform an exorcism on someone. Well, this demon said basically this, I know who Jesus you're referring to because they did so in the name of Christ. And I know who Paul is, you mentioned him, but I don't know who you are. Mm -hmm. And the demon attacked this man and he, of these men and they barely escaped with their lives. Mm -hmm. Well, this made, shall we say, public headlines throughout the throughout this city again. This brought the attention of all the people that were worshipers of Diana back to these group of people that worshiped Jesus Christ, mm -hmm. someone who died and rose again and now seemed to have had the power to, uh, to allow their disciples, the apostles, to exercise demons. So the third event that happened is that once the people saw this, many of the people believed. They were followers of Diana. They were uh, followers of the magical arts of that day. They took the books that they had in their possessions, very valuable books, and they took them out into the street and they burned them. The scripture says approximately 50,000 silver talents, or that silver coins worth of these books. That's a lot. Once this was done, it took notice, you know, people started to take notice of what is happening. It seemed to be turning things around, things upside down. And so the economic uh, people of the city were, were mostly artisans of the temple making silver uh, replicas of the temple with a small image of Diana inside of it, they were saying, if this man or these people start turning the city around, we're going to be losing our business. It's just going to be, it's just that, we, it's just that easy. And the argument was based upon one phrase. It says that any God made by human hands, they're not a God. And here they were, they were, these are the hands that were making these silver idols, making these little miniature replicas of the temple. And Diana inside, they're saying that these do not become God. These are not gods. And they said, we're going to have to stop this right now. And so they started an insurrection against the Christians. And, they, and, and Demetrius just started to pull people together. There is a Colosseum there. I don't know how close it is to the temple itself. But Demetrius started to gather people and said, this must be stopped. And after a while, they brought someone forward to give a defense. And then Demetrius led them in a chant or in repeating the phrase that great is Diana of the Ephesians. 
And they repeated that over and over again. For two hours they repeated this. Until basically the, the, you know, the apologist, the one that was defending uh, against it, was just canceled. They just, they would not listen to them. Eventually the clerk of the town came and said, if you do not disperse, the Roman consul is going to come and they're going to quiet this riot and everybody here is going to be in trouble. We're all going to be in trouble. They're going to be in trouble. You're going to be in trouble. Everyone needs to just go home. And that's where it ended right there. And so we can see that the city that, this is, uh, that these people were living in was dominated. The culture, the economy, everything was dominated by Diana or Artemis, same god of the Ephesians. And they were centered right there. A beautiful, huge temple that actually is, uh, is no longer there but was one that was admired throughout the entire world for what it was considered beautiful and large. However, at this time, we're going to go to the next verse. In verses 2 and 3, we read this. Christ begins his commendation of this church, and we begin to see that Christ knows. He knows that they are doctrinally uh, scriptural. They know that they are protective of the truth. He knows that they are discerning whether they have false teachers among them. And so they, they have the truth. They valued it. They resisted heresy. They were unwavering their commitment. They were loyal to the scriptures. At this point, the Lord is actually saying to them, you have endured patiently persecution. They received it socially, politically, and personally. Those are the type of persecutions that they underwent. So Christ was very clear that he was pleased. Pleased with their work, pleased with their toil, pleased with their intolerance of evil. Now all the things that the Lord is saying that's good about these people, we, I hope that we would like to say that about us. I hope that we would be like that in our own congregation. I mean, we want to be tolerant of, uh, of people, but we don't want to be tolerant of sin. Neither do we want to be tolerant of sinners. You see, because some people say, well, we have to love the sinner and hate their sin. Um, there's a lot of semantics involved in that, but let me say this. We need to preach against sin. And if a person does not leave their sin, we may have to preach against them. Mm -hmm. It is just what the scriptures tell us. And so we need to be patient, but we need to be patient in enduring persecution. This sounds like it was a good report, and it was. However, this is where the Lord begins in verses 4 and 5, where he says, Christ is also aware of the things that they did not do well. And basically, it's going to be one thing. But I have this against you. Now, I want you to imagine this. I want you to imagine our own congregation receiving a letter from the Lord, from the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's addressed to us. It's addressed to, you know, Faith Reformed Baptist Church. And then you begin to read the words. We're reading the words out loud. And then he says, I have this against you. I think it would just break everyone's heart here. Before we even heard the words, we would, be, we would say, what can we do to fix this? I hope that's what we would say. What can we do to fix what the Lord has against us? And I'm sure, and I would hope, and my prayer would be that the Ephesians were the same way. When they heard this and received this letter, and they heard from the Lord himself, I have this against you. I hope their hearts melted in repentance. It is difficult for anyone to listen to the commendations that they were receiving and then have the Lord say, 
but there is this thing against you. We have to realize that the Lord will probably, in all likelihood, if we're not perfect, have something against us. What we need to do is be ready to receive it. Receive the, uh, the rebuke. The believers in this church were rebuked by the Lord for abandoning their first love, their love for Christ. Now, this, the question is simple. The question is for you right now. Have you abandoned your first love? Have you at times in your life abandoned your love for Christ? Now, if you have, have you failed to repent? This is something that the flesh is able to do at the drop of a hat. Sometimes it is, it is discouraging to know how easy it is to have our hearts pulled away, to have our thoughts and minds pulled away by the world, by temptations of sin. And it's only because, I, I would say this, it is by virtue of the means of grace, the Word of God, and the working of the Spirit that we are moved to love the Lord Jesus Christ more than our sin. And because of that, we learn to hate our sin because it keeps us from Christ. This is where we learn to hate sin. The flesh loves sin, but if we would love Christ more, we would learn to hate sin more. And therefore, we, if we fail to love Christ, sin becomes much more powerful, much more able to divert our attentions, to have ourselves deny what we should not deny. And so we must remember that when the Lord said this, not very many times did he say to the other churches, I will come and remove your lampstand. There were other churches that did worse than this. Um, well, I don't know if I can say that. There are other churches that had more on the list of being reprimanded. They had a bigger list of reprimands. But on this one, he says, if you do not repent, your lampstand will be taken away. Now, what we have to remember is this, that the lampstand is a representation of the church. The Lord does not come to us and say, if your love for me has dwindled or waned, your soul is in danger. He doesn't say that. He is not saying that he's going to take away our salvation. He's not going to say that he will abandon us. He does not say that. Even though we abandon him, he does not say he will abandon us. He says that he will take away our public witness. Our public witness. And that is the way it ought to be. Why should the Lord be represented by people who do not love him best? It is a poor ambassador and a poor witness that they should love anything other than Christ himself. And so they are warned that their candlestick would be removed. If a church is unrepented because they have lost their love to Christ, that church will not bear an effective witness to the gospel. That church will ultimately cease to exist. The purpose of a lampstand is to give light. It's just what it does. And so, if the purpose of the church is to bear witness to Christ, it is to bear it in such a way that says, those people love the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to know who Christ is, find someone who loves him. Then they will show you who he is. Not someone who takes advantage of him, not someone that does him, that serves him like a mercenary, but someone that loves Christ for who he is. Those are the ones that will be bearing witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
If a church fails to accomplish that, if they do not have the mission of loving the Lord Jesus Christ with all their heart, their lampstand will be removed. The church will have, will have no purpose to exist. So, let's go on to the next verse, verse number 6. Yet this you have, you have, the, uh, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now this is an interesting phrase. It comes right after the only rebuke we read here. But he says this, you need to repent. You have not loved me. You lost your first love. However, this is good. And I'm not too sure exactly what's going on here. So I'm going to tell you right up front. I'm not too sure what the sin of the Nicolaitans is. But I have my guess. Okay, remember, I've always promised to tell you that when the word is clear, I'll tell you what the word says. But when the word is unclear to me, I'll tell you this is what I think it is. But it is an interesting statement that Christ would say this. Since you hate the Nicolaitans, I know that there's opportunity for you to love me most. Because the sin of the Nicolaitans well, will be explained a little bit later on when we get into the letter to Pergamum. Okay, because uh, that's mentioned a little bit later. We have more information to, to talk about that, but at this point we're not going to expound on it. We'll just talk a little bit about it. In Acts chapter 6, verse 5, we'll find the name Nicholas there mentioned among one of the deacons that were chosen at that time. Seven deacons were chosen out, and he happened, and one of those happened to have the name Nicholas. Now, I don't know if that is the same person that we're talking about. Some writers like to say, well, this is the only Nicholas we know, and perhaps the follower that he, that, you know, the people that he taught, they fell into some type of heresy. That may be true, it may be not true. Well, I don't know. So I think, I think of it like this. I don't think it means anything. Just because I, I tell Nicholas, my son-in-law, hey, what kind of doctrine are you trying to pull on us here? And he would not laugh very much about it because, uh, you know, he knows that, that the Nicolaitans must have been really subversive and, and I would say, perverse. Um, sometimes when I try to be funny, it's not funny. You all know that. And so when it comes to what the Nicolaitans actually believed, we're going to have to guess at it. So when we get to the letter to the Pergamum, to the people of Pergamum, we'll look, take a closer look at it because in that particular letter, it mentions Balaam and Balak, and then it right away brings the Nicolaitans again. And I have a suspicion that those type of sins are very closely aligned because when we get to it, you remember that uh, Balak wanted Balaam to curse God's people, but Balaam could not. But what, we, what he did do is that he, he counseled Balak to bring in prostitutes into the, into the people of, of Israelites. And then that's how the Lord judged them. He said, put a stumbling block in their way. And then if the people succumbed to their sin, then the Lord would judge them. Balaam could not judge them. He could not curse them. But God can curse them if they sin. And so the Nicolaitans is more, more than probable is a type of um, bad doctrine or practice that God says, I will judge you if you do that. And we'll get into that later. Now, the practical applications we have are going to begin in Revelations 2 chapter, I mean, verse 7. This is where the Lord says, He who hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, the phrase, he who hath an ear, let him hear. 
I've heard many people explain that. Sometimes they say something like this. Well, if you got ears, well, then you should listen. Well, I guess that makes sense, I suppose. Sometimes I, I think it means something like this. If you have the ability to understand what is saying, then give heed to it. But after looking at this and examining that there are seven other places in the New Testament where the Lord uses this phrase, he who hath an ear, let him hear, one of them was in a very similar place where we read tonight concerning in one of the other synoptic gospels other than Luke, where the Lord was explaining about the ministry of John the Baptist. Mm. And at the end, he was saying, now, this is actually, if you can receive it, Elijah. And then he says, if you have an ear to hear, let him hear. Mm. And so, to me, that gives us a little clue as to how this is to be used, if you can understand this. The other time he used it was, then, was when he was teaching about the parable of the sower of the good seed. And he went through all the possible scenarios of good seed being cast here, of seed being cast on this ground. And then at the end of that parable, he said, if you have an ear to hear, let him hear. There's also another time in which he used an analogy. And so we have a teaching of John the Baptist, we have a metaphor, but we also have an analogy where he says, the church or the people of God are like salt. They're like the savoring salt that preserves. And then he says, if you have an ear, then hear. I think that lends us to the idea that it's more like this. There is a lesson to be learned here. Please pay attention. Okay? And so when we read this phrase, he who hath an ear, let him hear. Let's hear these words. There is a lesson to be learned here. You should pay attention. And so he says, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. And so when we read what is being read to the Ephesians, pay attention. It could be to you. It could be to us as a congregation. Mm -hmm. Pay attention. There is a lesson to be learned. And so that is what we want to do from this point forward. We want to make sure that we do not miss the lessons that are to be learned. And so that means it was written to them, but also it is written to us. There is a lesson to be learned. Please pay attention. It is now written to us. Now, this message was written specifically to the Ephesians because they had that need. The need of being told and rebuked, you have lost your first love. Now, it was because of all the admonitions that they received, you, so, you were so good in your doctrine, you were so good in, in, in discovering uh, heresies. You're so good in making sure that false apostles weren't in here, but you still left your first love. And so if there was any church among these churches that are going to be rebuked, I would say that our church should pay close attention to this letter. I believe that we're doctrinally good here. I believe that we have the ability to know what is right and wrong. And, and, if, and if a false apostle came here, we would be able to recognize it. But the question is, have we used the means of grace to obtain Christ? Mm. Have we used the tools that we have and the knowledge that we have to overcome the obstacles to achieve the goal, mm. to achieve Christ? Mm. Now, when I was a young guy, I, you know, back when I was like 16 years old, I first got my license. You know, I'm driving around a little bit. At this time, I was, I was in a position where my father drove truck. He, 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 he drove long-distance truck professionally his whole life that I could remember. And um, 
he, at the time, I didn't have a mother, and he met someone, he wanted to get married, and this person that he wanted to marry was in a different state. You see, I lived in Akron, Ohio, we lived in Akron, and this place that he, that he met this lady was in Maryland, and he had a, what was called a bid run. He would drive every day, no, no, not every day, he would drive three times a week from Akron to Maryland, rural Maryland. It's about 350 miles, took about six hours, but he drove it three times a week. Can you imagine how accustomed he came to that? He would drive down 70 through Pennsylvania, through the mountains, beautiful drive, every single time. He knew every turn, he knew every exit, he knew everything about it. Well, there was a time when he wanted me to move down there because he was married. He kind of got tired of me waiting around to give him permission, so he said, hey, I got married, you want to meet my wife? You know, and so one of those deals happened, and so he decided to give me directions. He's going to give me instructions. A little bit like we were getting instructions, we have to pay attention to instructions, and my dad knew this so well that he took an envelope and he wrote the instructions on the back of the envelope, about, about this many instructions. Driving from Akron, Ohio, from my driveway to the driveway where I'm supposed to arrive in Laurel, Maryland, 350 miles later, six hours drive later. And I'm telling you, the directions were so clear. I mean, I drove, I pulled out of the driveway, six hours later, I pulled into the driveway. It was like, it was just an amazing. Like, I didn't know he could, he knew every exit number, he knew every sign. He said, when you drive by this, you're going to see this. It was just, it was easy. I can remember one time, he wanted me to meet him at a fishing camp. He, he, he gave me directions on a little piece of paper. Now, the last of the directions said something like this. You're going to see a paper plate nailed to a tree. That's where you turn left. I mean, the directions were amazing. But you see, nowadays, if I wanted to tell you how to go someplace, would you, would you be comfortable if I gave you an envelope and with my handwriting right down, this is how you go? Wouldn't, or would you rather I give you a map from the Department of Transportation and you unfold it? And you're like, okay, okay, someone give me a marker. Where do I go? Make sure we don't miss this crossroad, this and this. The instructions that we have, that we used to be used to, we would say, man, can you just give me a GPS? Give me my phone. Here's the address. And then you, when you're driving, a lady tells you, in 20 feet, get into left lane. You'll be turning left at the light. Okay. And then you do that until you arrive. Now, when it comes to our church, I think that we have been able to listen to teaching and preaching where we're past the envelope instructions. Mm. We're even past the DOT map where you have to fold it right. Mm. And we've been, you know, we're at the point where we're almost given instructions like, like GPS. But the question is this, were you able to arrive at your destination? Mm -hmm. Do you see? Now that's it. Mm -hmm. if, if you have a GPS, but for some reason, you get tired, you pull over. You know what? This is a long way. Why do I have to be told by somebody on a phone where to go? Or I don't like folding these maps. I just like, you know, I'll just drive anywhere I want. Maybe I'll just get to a place I like. The point is this. My point is this. The goal that we have is to embrace and to love Christ. Mm -hmm. We've been given doctrine to help us achieve that. Now, the, these people have been saying, your doctrine is great. Your, 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 uh, your ability to, uh, to understand who are, uh, the apostles are really good. You have done such a good job. 
You have used the means of grace so well. However, you have failed to reach your destination. You have failed to make Christ the pinnacle of your achievement, to have Christ formed in you. This is what the Apostle Paul is telling them. And so, if you can actually get to your destination, I don't care if you use the instructions on the back of an envelope, or if you have a map, or if you have a GPS, but wouldn't it be nice if we were able to use a GPS, then you can go to anywhere. However, you have to be able to get to the destination. We should never forget that all that God gives us in the means of grace is designed to enable us to obtain Christ. The Ephesians, they should have learned this. They should not have loved other things more than Christ. The Ephesians should have Christ should have loved Christ above all the doctrinal errors that they discovered. They should have loved Christ more than all the false apostles that they rejected. They should have loved Christ more than all the industrious and hard work that they did. They should have loved Christ more than all the persecutions that they endured. But you see, those things were good works. They were even commended for them. And so the message that we're looking at today is this. We should never let our achievements satisfy us more than our love to Christ. Because being God's people with his word, we should be working hard. We should have achievements. We should have missionaries. We should have things that we have accomplished. But if we sit around and look at our achievements and we enjoy them more than Christ, what good are they? They become impediments. We should love Christ more than any of this. So the message today to the Ephesians is this. Never let our achievements satisfy us more than our love for Christ. We should only be satisfied with Jesus Christ. There are two things that we have to keep in proper order, and both of them are good. They're both good, but one is better than the other. We must love Christ. That must be on top. And we must obey the Word of God. Okay? And they say, well, how can you put one above the other? Well, one's is a means of grace. One's is a means of grace. We use one to achieve the other. We must obey the Word of God and cherish the Word of God. Embrace it. But you see, it has a goal for us to achieve, and that is Christ. We must learn from the Word of God, which is vital, that it is a means of grace. And after we meet Christ, we must learn to love Him above all other things. Because the Word of God is going to do this for us. It's going to convict us of our sin. And what does it do? It introduces us to our need of Christ. Once we have Christ in our hearts, once we see the beauty of God in Christ, then we must have all of the insights that are given to us, all of the promptings of the Holy Spirit, all of the gifts and means of grace of the Word of God, they must bring us closer to Christ, or we have a GPS that's pointing us in the right direction, and we never arrive. It must help us obtain Christ. And so the concluding lesson is this. If you have cooled in your love to Christ, I want you to receive the rebuke. Receive it. Remember when Apollos went to um, Ephesus and Aquila and Priscilla was there? And, and Apollos was, was a mighty man of the word. He was a great preacher. But these two people said, wait a minute, you have a problem. And what did Apollos do? He received the rebuke. He learned from it. 
And now we need to be like that. We need to be able to receive the rebuke that we have lost a little of our love for Christ, if that's the case. Remember, if the shoe fits, you must wear it. Remember how the Lord showed his love to the Ephesians. And how did he do it? How did the Lord show his love? He rebuked them where they needed it. When we first discovered our love in the form of this, a conviction of sin. You see, a conviction for sin is a rebuke. His rebuke called us to repentance. And so this is what his love looks like. It looks like a rebuke. It calls us back. So, we read the scriptures and it says this, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Mm -hmm. Now listen, the one who conquers, I'm going to replace that with this, to the one who loves Christ above all. Mm -hmm. Do you see? That's what he means, because in every letter he says, to the one that conquers, I'll do this. To the one that conquers, you'll get this. Mm -hmm. To the one that conquers, you'll do that. You see? But what is conquering? What is the conquering? You have to go to the, uh, to the rebukes to see what it is. And in this case, it is to lack your love of Christ. You must have love of Christ. And so in this case, to conquer means to love Christ above all. I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's receive the rebuke tonight. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your kindness and for your patience. We want to thank you. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for convicting us of our sins. Thank you for giving us the truth of your word. Thank you for the Bible. And so now we pray. We pray that our hearts would embrace the Lord Jesus Christ all the more. May we love God above all things. We, may we hunger and thirst after the righteousness that can only be given as a gift. May we hunger and thirst after the holy God who is above all, who never does evil, who is always good, the Almighty One. And He has been given to us the expressed image of our God in Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And so, Father, enable us, Holy Spirit, inflame our hearts to love Christ all the more. We pray this in our Lord's name. Mm -hmm. Amen.